Hi and welcome back to the Leading Language and Literature podcast with me, Chris Jordan. In today's episode, I'm talking with Shannon Kavanagh. Shannon is head of senior school English at King George V School in Hong Kong. In the episode, we discuss one of the best texts that she's recently read, studied or taught, an introduction to her career to date and current position at KG5, the recent review of diversity and inclusion at the school, how planning is organised within the department and school as a whole, the specific challenges KG5 students face in English and how the department combats this, the extent to which technology plays a part in delivering the curriculum at KG5, Shannon and the department's approach to marking and what the school's expectation is with frequency, turnaround time and nature of feedback, and lastly, recommendations for resources that English teachers may find useful. If you haven't already, subscribe via Spotify, Apple or wherever you get your podcasts from if you'd like to be made more aware of uh, educational chat like this and when it becomes available. Alternatively, you can follow me on Twitter by searching for at ChrisJordanHK. Thanks again to Shannon for discussing life at KG5 with me and for the variety of recommendations she makes around pedagogy and literature, respectively. Okay, Shannon, um, what has been the best text that you've ever read, studied or taught and why? So, oh, so I'd love to start off by talking to you about um, a novel in English called The Memory Police by a Japanese author called Yoko Ogawa. I don't know if you know it. Mm -mm. Um, it was written in the 1990s, originally in Japanese, and was actually only translated into English about a year and a half ago. Um, so we're kind of uh, at the cutting edge of teaching this one. We like to tell ourselves we are anyway. Um, but The Memory Police is, um, at least in English, marketed as speculative fiction. So I initially kind of discovered it when looking for um, non-Western dystopian fiction so things to replace uh, the handmaid's tale and so on uh, with now the reason why i love memory police though uh, is that i mean it's just so much more than that um, it is speculative fiction um, it kind of tells the story of a novelist who lives on a small remote island where things disappear uh, and by disappear i mean you know, nouns disappear, birds disappear, mm. flowers disappear, um, and the the inhabitants of the island kind of live through and process those disappearances with no explanation really of why they're going, where they're going, or what it means for something to disappear, which, yes, has things in common with dystopian and speculative fiction that we're more familiar with. But I think what's really amazing about it actually is that it's not it's not just speculative fiction. Um, I think it, it allow, allows the reader uh, and allows students to kind of explore ideas around loss and mourning and family and what it means to, to really remember things and what it means to really mm. remember um, family identities and cultural heritage and, and all of those kinds of things um, as well. It's also so beautifully written. Um, I think when I first read it, um, there's a moment at the beginning when the roses disappear and I won't spoil it for anyone that might go on to read it, but it is beautiful prose um, in kind of processing um, what it means for something to just sort of stop existing. Um, and I, so I think it's, it's an incredible text to teach as well because um, Ogawa and of course the translator as well kind of uses this very sort of increasingly hollow language to try and explore what happens when the language that we initially had to, to express something disappears um, so from a kind of linguistic point of view, it's really interesting. Um, and I guess kind of the final thing I love about it or that I'm interested in with it in terms of doing it with students um, is, you know, I think, I mean, as you know, right, as teachers of the IB, we, we teach texts in translation. Um, and what's really interesting about it, actually, is that for a text that's so much about uh, language and expression and writing, um, the way that the text is transformed into an English text is really interesting, too, because, um, it's marketed, of course, as the memory police in, in English, um, but the literal translation of its title is secret crystallization, um, which is completely different. Um, and I think without giving spoilers, I think better, because actually in contrast to a lot of Western uh, speculative fiction, it, it's not really about institutions. You know, the memory police are a very minor part, actually of the world that the writer creates. And yet it's marketed as if that's the central focus. I mean, as a, as a reader who knows Orwell, who knows Atwood, I kind of always expected 
this 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 secretive figure to kind of appear and and take over the narrative and that that doesn't happen um and so i think it also begs an interesting question about books as texts um and how titles and translations often go beyond the literal um and things like that so so that's for me it, it's something i read quite recently um but it's it's definitely the work that i'm, I'm most excited about um and and loving teaching uh, and loving working through at the minute Mm, that sounds really interesting actually yeah I'll have to um <clears throat> if it, like th- th- these kind of books or like uh, any authors or writers that we name I will try and endeavor to write it down in like the link section below when I when I put the episode out but yeah that sounds great um currently you're at King George V school in Hong Kong can you just give us an introduction mm-hmm. to your career to date and how you ended up as uh, head of department there sure um so I started my career uh about a decade ago in London, um, so which is also where I come from. So I, I did my uh, PGCE really, I don't want to say on a whim, but I kind of got to that position where I was a third year literature undergraduate student um, and thinking, oh, I, I need to do something. I need to find some way of getting a career, starting to work and, and starting to kind of uh, to make money and those kind of important things. And, and so I thought, well, okay, let me try teaching as one of my possibilities. So it really wasn't something that I was working towards from the beginning. Um, it was something I got very, very lucky in because I applied and got in and fell in love with what I was doing in, in a way that I never really expected, to be honest. But um, I did my training uh, in, in London in the East End uh, in what some might like to call challenging schools. Um, and I just head in love with what I was doing you know I mean it's something that I have had to remind myself of a lot over the last couple of years as things have been very challenging in education um but that we get to do a job where we get to you know see young people go through so much uh, and and encourage them to to do that through literature through storytelling and so on is, is such an incredible privilege so that's where I started out um and I I worked at my training school as an NQT and then kind of moving on from there I was there for about five years. Um, it was a, a lovely kind of sort of small-ish, maybe 10 people uh, English department. Uh, and in my penultimate year there, I took on um, the role of professional mentor, uh, which effectively meant that I was in charge of, of new staff development. So I was uh, mentoring, I think, about 20 um, trainees in total, some PGC students, some Teach First, some uh, what was then called Schools Direct. I'm not sure if that might have changed by now, actually, in the UK. And mm. um, so I did that for a year. Um, and again, really loved that. It was my first kind of taste of leadership. Um, and I found myself really enjoying the sort of um, the opportunity to get out of my department. And to think actually for the first time about pedagogy from a sort of school wide level, you know, I can still remember uh, a moment sitting in the background of a Mandarin lesson. I, I at the time had had no Mandarin whatsoever um, and the teacher was teaching entirely in Mandarin. And yet being able to realize that I could see the kind of the sort of uh, the machine work of her pedagogy and realizing that I could understand how she was getting them to understand syntax mm. Um, and to understand the kind of vocabulary that's being used was such a revelatory moment for me uh, in terms of seeing how language development can be taught across subjects and also just seeing how, you know, how the school experience works beyond my individual classroom or beyond mm. my kind of subject. Um, and that's something that's kind of stuck with me um, very much over the last few years. So totally unrelated to the school. I loved the school, was very, very happy there. Um, but I came on holiday um, to Hong Kong in um February 2016, um, just to visit my partner's family and, and explore, you know, a new a new place and whatever. Um, and on the last day of that trip, we just had this conversation of like, we could live here. We could we could live here. Um, and it just was one of those ideas that just burrowed under my skin. Um, and I resigned a week later. Um, didn't have a job lined up, didn't have anything. But this is I, I want to do this. You know, like we have. We're lucky. Um, I know that for a lot of people who move internationally, they move by themselves. You know, they move to a new country with no connection. Whereas for us, we had my partner's uh, aunts and uncles and grandma here um, who were able to help us enormously with our first kind of steps on the ladder of, of existing here. Um, but yeah, turned up with uh, with very little, not really a plan. Um, did a little bit of tutoring for a while, um, which 
was challenging um, because, of course, as anyone in Hong Kong knows, the, the tutoring network here is very intensive. Um, it, it's, it's quite a cutthroat business. Um, but, you know, it taught me quite a lot about the local education system. I was mostly tutoring DSE, um, which was, I think, really important for me to understand how that works. And it also gave me a little bit more free time uh, to start learning Cantonese, to explore Hong Kong in a way that I think you probably can't when you're actually really in school. Um, so I did that for a little while um, and then did a maternity cover uh, at Kellett, which is a British international school here, which was about four months. Uh, and then I started at KG5 at the end of my first year. Um, at KG5, so I've, I've been there for four years now. Um, I started as a main scale teacher, um, got my kind of first little step on the ladder doing, again, a maternity cover um, overseeing the middle years curriculum in English and then two years ago became the head of senior school English um, which really means uh, kind of coordinating the IB program um, and luckily for me um, who's always enjoyed that also getting to look more collaboratively across other subjects and looking at how our kind of DP program works um, beyond um, beyond just the English curriculum but as any IB teacher knows, the last two years have really been about adapting to the new course and the new assessment. Uh, and so that's been very much kind of the project of the last two years. How, how have the last sort of three or four years then, uh, thinking specifically about KG5, mm. compared with working in London from like a personal or like a cultural point of view? You obviously kind of, it's a bit of a, um, you've obviously got Ofsted in the UK and it's not to say that it's like a free market economy uh, completely with education in Hong Kong, but do, do you feel slightly less of that kind of burden of governmental expectations out here or or like how does it work kind of uh, professional culture wise? It's a really interesting question, actually, um, because it's something that I struggled with when I first moved out here is that, you know, I had come from a school that in my first year um, was rated a three, which was once called satisfactory and then became requires improvement. So it was a school that was not failing, but on the cusp of that. And then by the time I left, mm -hmm. we were officially a good school. So a, a kind of a two uh, on the offset rating. And it's definitely not the case that in the UK that everything we were doing was about Ofsted uh, and about kind of meeting those expectations but it was this kind of ever-present spectre in the corner of our peripheral vision you know waiting mm. for the next inspection waiting for the next kind of um, opportunity for assessment and of course it's also the case in the UK that teachers are graded or they were when I was there um, on a yearly or, or termly you know sometimes more than termly basis so coming from that into a system that didn't really have the same level um, of school inspection um, or even the same kind of culture of, of sort of formalized graded observation was strange. Um, and I think I found it quite difficult to begin with because I, I realized um, kind of ironically, I guess, in education that I was measuring so much of my success based on the number that someone was giving me at the end of each term. Mm. Um, you know, so am I outstanding or am I not? You know, um, and I think when you work in a context that doesn't have that, um, there's often a bit of a bump, at least I've found that. But then you kind of have to really address your more intrinsic motivations. Um, you know, we still have those external factors like exam results. Um, and in a context like Hong Kong, where, where education, I think, is a bit more competitive than I was used to in the UK, where exam results are much more uh, important in kind of community perceptions of how good the school is um, and how good the teaching is and so on. I think that still exists. But in terms of the day-to-day, -day, the week-to-week -week for how you measure your kind of, uh, I don't know, your status in the school or your status in the organisation, um, it comes much more down to how you kind of envision yourself and, and how, how, how it kind of gives you the opportunity to measure um, what success actually should look like in an English classroom or any other classroom. And I think that's something as well that while, you know, in, in a year and a half of school closures, observation has been a, a challenge. Um, I think from a leadership point of view as well, there's been opportunity to really think, OK, well, what does great English teaching look like? You know, what are, what are our metrics for, for assessment in the, you know, the lowercase version of that word? Right. We're not grading anyone. Um, but but how do we measure that success and what should that measure look like? Um, I think is actually really empowering. Um, and while it's something that was definitely a kind of psychological I don't want to say hurdle but definitely a challenge at the start I think it's something mm. that's made um the it, it's made me keep in mind why I love the job so much 
um, and keep fresh for reasons that I think are much more, you know, valid and motivating actually um, than those assessments used to be. Yeah, there's there's definitely a unique challenge there in terms of if you if you withdraw all those hurdles, state kind of mandated hurdles, um, you've obviously got to put mm. um, hurdles up for yourself, and it it it's um, it's a really really tough ask. Like, do you basically just ape what what's come before? Do you do you copy mm. something that you've come into contact with in the UK or? Do you uh, have to look further afield, as you as you alluded to there? I know another thing that KG5's been looking into recently is um, sort of diversity and in- inclusion mm-hmm. matters at a school-wide level and within individual subject areas. Um, what can you tell me about how that's translated into English or just observations that you've made of the school more mm-hmm. broadly? This is a great question. Um, So to give you some context, uh, about a year ago, KG5 uh, received some feedback from some uh, graduating students um, criticising the school for its uh, inclusivity uh, in various different ways. Some of it was curriculum, some of it was more pastoral. And of course, also uh, really inviting the school to reckon with its colonial heritage as well. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact is, is that KG5 is a, a very old, originally British school that's now part of the English Schools Foundation. That uh, is an IB school, um, but that still very much has a lot of the kind of uh, aesthetics, I guess, um, of, of Hong Kong's kind of colonial legacy. We, it's an English medium school. Um, and I think from kind of school culture perspective, it's certainly perceived still as being a bit of a relic um, of, of, of times now gone. Um, and that was a difficult moment, I think, in the school's history. We were coming to the end of uh, two terms of online learning um, because of COVID. And it was a moment of pause that, you know, the, the, the letter that was written that brought those criticisms came out two days, I think, before the end of the school year when everyone's very happy. Um, and suddenly there was this moment of reckoning of going, well, actually, these things that exist. And and it, and I think it kind of brought this process of real soul searching across the community um, and a real kind of nervousness, actually, I think, for a lot of people, of, well, how does our school leadership respond to that? You know, what's the right thing to do? What's the easy thing to do? Um, And what's the thing that will be done? And so when we came back after summer, um, our head teacher kind of put out feelers, put out an invitation um, to staff who were interested, willing to be involved in looking initially at that letter, um, breaking it down a little bit, trying to understand um, where it had come from, how... Uh, not valid, but but kind of what the actual kind of concrete version of those kind of emotional uh, points were uh, and to look for data and look for ways to move forward. Uh, and I got involved in that from the beginning. And it, initially, I think it was seen about 30 teachers. Um, KG5 has, has 100 or so, so a, a decent proportion. Um, and so the year that followed has been, you know, probably... For, that re- for, for the reason of that, that kind of diversity inclusion work... Um, absolutely the best thing that's happened in my whole career mm-hmm. um and I didn't see that coming um I was very nervous going into it because I, I agreed with a lot of what was in the letter you know I think that we have work to do um and we had work to do and I was nervous that you know as all organizations that face criticism there is always a possibility and yes thank you for your feedback moving on um but mm-hmm. that's not what happened um and so we're now at a point you know 12 months down the line where we have a team of 20 odd teachers, we have a team of 20 odd students, uh, we have alumni who are involved, current parents uh, who are involved, uh, non-teaching staff and a number of critical friends. So people who work for uh, diversity and inclusion based organizations in Hong Kong uh, who come in to offer insight as well. Um, and we're doing the work, you know, and, and I think we're, we're at a point now where we've kind of broken the process down into you know, curriculum, obviously, um, but also kind of pastoral celebration, um, staff training, parent training, student training, language policy, um, and really trying to look at this uh, not as an opportunity for a quick fix that looks good, um, but to really think about what it takes to change the culture of an organization. You know, how mm-hmm. do you reckon with um, an organization's colonial heritage? How do you reckon with uh, an education system that still prizes? Uh, Western-based texts, and which still, you know, employs predominantly teachers who have been trained uh, in Western organisations. Um, and I think what's been really inspiring for me, actually, is that 
from looking at my leadership in the school, you know, we've never really shied away from how difficult those questions are um, and that this isn't something we're going to solve in in a year or in two years, but actually something that just needs to be a new part of our school culture. Um, so in terms of kind of concrete things, really, uh, from the point of view of curriculum and, of course, English more specifically, um, we spent so I'm in the curriculum group um, in addition to the kind of the school-wide steering committee. And so we've taken quite a lot of this year to just find out what exists. So we've done a lot of work with our student community, with our alumni and parents, getting a sense of their perception of our curriculum, and of course with staff and subject leaders more specifically, to try and understand um, where we are right now, where the areas perhaps of weakness are, um, and also what students would think of as being a curriculum that was genuinely inclusive and diverse. And for us, I think what's really important is that it doesn't become something tokenistic. It's like, well, you know, we've mm. ticked the box. We've now got one Hong Kong writer. We've now got one LGBTQ writer. Therefore, we are diverse and we can carry on teaching Dickens or something. Um, but it's about really looking at increasing teacher subject knowledge, I think, is really important. You know, making sure that people are not forced to go out of their way and, and learn something brand new, but rather are given the opportunity um, and the time and the, the money sometimes to go away and learn about new canons of literature or to learn about new writers who are coming up or, you know, new artists and so on. Um, and so that's been really important is that it, it takes, because it takes time. You know, most of our teachers are very, very experienced, very highly qualified, um, who have studied Western greats for many, many, many years. And you can't get that kind of subject knowledge overnight. So it's really been about changing the way that we work and change the way that we think in terms of staff development and so on. Um, it, all, it also, though, I think at the same time is about reformulating the way we think about the canon, because, you know, as all of us with degrees in literature know, um, for students who predominantly want to study overseas, want to go to the UK, the US, Canada, um, they do need to know something of the canon. Um, mm. a, a literature degree would expect that of them. And so something else kind of in tandem with, with diversifying is also thinking about how we look at our canonical texts in new and more creative or more critical ways. You know, that it's, it's absolutely valid to look at, I don't know, I've got a copy of Frankenstein in front of me here, you know, to look at Frankenstein, to look at Shakespeare, um, but to consider as well why we have a canon. You know, what does it mean for a text to belong to a canon? What does it mean for a text to be considered classic? What is the value, the function of kind of classically significant art? Um, and I think we're, we're working now as well. So when we teach those classical texts of bringing that conversation in, you know, and sometimes that's about looking at, at queer theory readings of Shakespeare. And sometimes that's about, you know, metagaming and thinking, well, actually, why is this text in the curriculum? Why have I brought this to you? Um, what is the value of exploring this? And so it's, I guess we're kind of trying to look at it, you know, yes, from the point of view of text selection and, and staff knowledge and development, but also from the point of view of, of cultures, of pedagogy, um, and thinking more explicitly, more openly about, uh, and being more open with our students as well about why we've chosen particular texts. If we've put this in the curriculum, whether it's IB or NYP or, or anywhere in the, in the sort of seven years that they're with us, why is this here? What is the value we think we bring to it? Um, and inviting them to bring those connections in as well. So there's a kind of long-term cultural shift, um, I think, that, that's happening too. And, and I, I think that's that's going to take a long time. Um, but I think what's been really lovely is just seeing, you know, those rules in motion and having those conversations. Um, and, and of course, also just seeing the goodwill, you know, that, that to take something that was a very negative moment, I think, in, in our last school year and turn it into something that's leading to real concrete changes in our school policy um, at every level, you know, not just in terms of our curriculum, and, and also to see students taking leadership roles and in, in, in being willing to kind of come on that, um, I don't want to say journey, but kind of to come on that journey with us and, and think about how, you know, we as a community change our school, that it isn't just top down, I think is really important too. I think it's 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 a hell of a, a challenge, I think, mm. for international schools particularly. I'm not sure about any other country, but Hong Kong um is is it's one of those places where I suppose I, I'm not sure about the like English schools foundation, how it markets itself to to parents and that kind of thing, but there certainly still is like a, a prestige or an esteem that goes with being an English school or a British school or having British education, whatever the hell that means. And I think you've you you're almost doing a balancing act between saying that we offer that level of education or that style of education at the same time as 
also wanting to preserve the IB's philosophy of kind of global mindedness and all this kind of thing. But even beyond that, if you've got students who come from 50, 60, 70, 80, however many different kind of cultural backgrounds or countries, there tends to be like a reversion in in many schools to like a, a homogeneity of culture. Like you don't want to be, as with any high school student, you might not necessarily want to stand out. And it does lead to these kind of situations where a lot of the students end up with like transatlantic accents or American accents, depending what school you're at and this kind of thing. So it's it's a hell of a balancing act, I think, for principals or head teachers and, and staff to try and um, change that culture. So it's 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 a very, um, yeah, it's quite an admirable thing. that, And it was big news as well, just for context. Yeah. I mean, obviously you were at more or less, you know, the epicenter of it. But I remember going to a restaurant or a bar or something last year or the year before whenever it happened and having conversations about it, it was in like the, the South China Morning Post and it was it was it was a big talking point but the irony was I was surrounded by other British people and we didn't really know what to make of it because we are not the sort of demographic which um were were kind of concerned about the culture of the school in question so um yeah in terms of just just moving on so staying like within the school mm. and how it's organized and that kind of thing um you spoke a little bit before Shannon about the fact that as head of department you're constantly reaching out to other departments or this kind of thing in terms of building the curriculum um and thinking about instruction how how is that managed within the school? How is that organized in terms of, do you have like specific planning days or planning periods? Is it all done at the beginning of the year, at the end of the year? Mm-hmm. Um, how how does that kind of uh, administratively or logistically get done? Um, so we have, I, I guess, starting from a structural uh, perspective, every Monday afternoon we have collaboration. Um, now, that's changed forms a lot in the last year and a half for, for obvious reasons. But um, at the moment, the form it kind of takes is about two and a half hours. Um, so school finishes a little bit earlier. We start about 2.30. We have whole staff meetings and then move on into what's usually department collaboration. Um, and so time to work on schemes of work or standardization or, or moderation and so on. Um, but it's it, it it's designed flexibly. So a team um, who are working, say, on diversity and inclusion or on language development or whatever it might be, TOK and so on, will also have space within that framework to meet, to get together, um, to do planning or to, to have the meetings that they need. So that's the main kind of um, structural thing uh, that we have. And then beyond that, we also have, you know, I think like, like all schools um, or most schools have uh, designated CPD days as well, um, where some of those are the kind of more traditional uh, external trainer um, opportunities, but we're moving increasingly now towards more internal um, events or internally planned days as well, which provide more opportunities um, for teachers to just kind of come together and work on what they need to work, what we work on, what we need to work on, right? Um, so next year, I think quite excitingly, we're moving towards a model where more of our training is being delivered by just experts from our school. Um, So people are being invited to share. And it's kind of, it's really in the model um, of, I don't know if you know, the UK-based teach meets, um, sort of short presentations on the subject of your interest, your expertise, your passion, um, which then allow people to kind of collaborate based on what it is you've shared. So it's kind of based on that sort of model. Um, it's not running a whole day's training on X area. It's about saying, what do you care about? What do you love? What do you like? Um, what do you know? Can you lead a, a 30 minutes, you know, share something and then we'll workshop through it and think about how you, it could be practically applied to classroom A, B, C or D. Um, because I think, I don't know if you found this as well, but something that I think we have found is that, you know, and, and we've all done our best, right? But but being, working from home for, for almost a year and a half, Um, has been quite isolating and I mean for us we're a department of 18 English teachers so even just keeping us connected um, is a challenge never mind connecting with people that we don't kind of uh, you know need to connect with so to speak you know it's I have to talk to other IB teachers and if I'm stressed about a pandemic that's probably the only people I want to talk to but Mm. what we're starting to see now I guess hopefully is the opportunity to 
move away from that again and move back into more kind of cross-curricular collaboration and so on. So really looking for ways that, that we can have workshops that are running by people in faculty A, where faculty B come along. And then we look at how, how, how those kind of lines go across their subjects as well. Um, but I think we're, we're in a position now, I think, where things are kind of in flux, um, really because we're just adapting again um, to more kind of timetable changes and, and that sort of thing, which is just an inevitability um, mm -hmm. for us, for all schools now. But but that's the kind of the model that we have. Um, and yeah, I think we're kind of hopefully getting back to a point now, now that we're sort of fully open and hopefully staying that way, um, where we're also going back into kind of cultures of more informal collaboration. So which I think is, is maybe the most exciting thing, but we'll see. Mm. I've um I, I've asked this question for, to quite a few heads of department. The uh, um the idea that like what do your specific sort of students in KG KG five struggle with? Um, mm. and it tends to be, um, I always get the same answers. To be honest, it doesn't really matter if I ask someone in Brussels or Hong Kong or or Rome or whatever. But um, within within KG five, it's obviously quite a a mixed kind of cultural background thing in terms of like the students or demographics so is there one sort of common area that you feel that they struggle with and uh, as a department how do you go about combating that if there is one hmm. um so to be honest I think there are two things um if that's okay that, that, um, that yeah, I yeah. think are kind of at the forefront for us at the minute and the first is uh language development so I mean most international schools in Hong Kong are kind of seeing a demographic shift at the minute um, as some of our students leave and, and other students arrive. Um, and so while we've always been a school that's had um, a wide variety of students who are bio-multilingual, uh, we're now seeing those numbers increasing to proportions that we as a school have never really experienced before. And so a huge amount of the work that we're having to do right now is about um, integrating pedagogy specifically for BML students and thinking about how we deliver our curriculum that is still embracing the kind of IB, MYP principles of inquiry and higher order thinking, but in a way that actually centres the development of students' language proficiency. And of course, what I'm talking about there is English proficiency because that's our mode of instruction and our mode of assessment. But, you know, as you say, and as we alluded to before, in the conversation on diversity and inclusion, it's not just about English that most of our students arrive with, with varying degrees of good English, um, but that's rarely their first language or often at least not their first language. And so a part of that conversation as well is about, well, how do we then integrate Cantonese, Mandarin, Korean, Japanese, Urdu, Gujarati, and so on into the way that we teach for us literature, um, but of course how we teach across the board. And so I think that from a kind of pedagogical point of view, from the point of view of getting kids across the line in exams or getting them the qualifications they need to move on into university. It's about English language development. It's about giving them the language skills that they need to write and speak in that higher academic register in English uh, that we know you need for the IO for the higher level for the exams and so on. Um, and so that's become really, really core in the conversations that we have um, around how we kind of review and adapt really our NYP curriculum. We're trying to approach it from as much of a vertical kind of point of view as possible that it's not just about, well, how do we make sure they use a discourse marker in year 13, but actually how do we integrate that kind of culture in year seven? How do we make sure that they have the meta language of talking about grammar? How do we make sure that they, they can, uh, you know, spell common words? How do we make sure they can deconstruct meaning from unfamiliar vocabulary uh, and so that's been really a, a big push for us but of course underneath that um, is the more I guess kind of inclusive uh, ideological kind of question of well how do we do that without negating home languages so-called home languages you know actually the language that they speak the minute they leave the gates um, mm. you know how do we integrate um, bilingualism, how do we celebrate multilingualism, or even how do we just normalize multilingualism, the mind celebration? Um, and so looking for ways that we can also make our curriculum support that too. So looking at our texts in multiple languages, doing more collaboration with the Chinese departments, with the MFL departments more broadly, and really thinking about how language is, you know, there's this exciting, malleable thing, right? Not this, this kind of one line you have to jump over, but actually there's this 
this thing that, that interacts with the other languages around it. Um, and so we're really trying to embrace that um, as we kind of move forward. Uh, the second thing for us, and I guess this is probably true for everyone too, but it, it's about well-being. Um, you know, one of the greatest challenges that our students and actually our staff face as well is, is about well-being and mental health. You know, we are we've had a very challenging couple of years um, and that's not over. And I think something that we're becoming increasingly conscious of is the need to think about well-being as part of our pedagogy and as part of our curriculum design, that it's, you know, that probably it was never acceptable to just go, well, we've got a well-being centre, so off you go. But but actually to, to really embrace those challenges as being just part of who we are as a school now um, and part of what education kind of is now, um, it's not something that's going to go away. Um, but actually looking, uh, a bit like with the memory police, you know, looking for texts that allow students to explore ideas of mourning and trauma, but, but also looking for ways that creative writing can be used to, to express... Um, whatever challenges a student might be facing mm. or a teacher might be facing. Um, you know, I think it's, and again, I think this has always been true, but now it's unavoidably true that we have to start thinking about uh, well-being really from a systemic point of view, right? That it isn't just about, um, oh, this one student's having a bad day, so let me deal with that isolated case, but actually looking at how do we kind of curriculum plan? How do we year plan? How do we assessment plan? Where mental health um, in all of its forms are at the forefront of our decision making. So I don't think that's been the case um, really up until now, but it's something that is starting to happen in our conversations. Um, and I think, you know, not, not a minute too soon. Um, but I, I think that's something um, not specific to the English department or to the English, the teaching of literature, but something that we need to deal with at a school-wide level. And of course, I think actually um, something we're very privileged in is that from the point of view of literature, we can help you know like we we do have those tools of catharsis whether that's writing or reading or, or shared experiences and storytelling um that actually we are really well positioned um to help process a lot of what we have lived through um and it doesn't it doesn't solve anything i don't think um but you know i think for a lot of us right you go into that career in teaching english because of that experience you had in reading at some point you know there was that one text that reached out a hand to you when you needed it um, and you just kind of spend your career trying to replicate that moment. Um, <laughs> and I, I think that principle um, is coming in and needs to come in uh, more um, to the kind of conversations that we're having from that point of view as well, I think. Yeah, the the well-being thing, as you sort of just touched on there with regard to like the last few years, I think there's been like an explosion in sort of like empathy from the, the divide between teachers or kind of school leaders and the mm. students, because as much as, you know, you'd like to think that you can remember what it's like to be a teenager or a young person. I think this kind of idea of being locked in, all of us are in the same position, whether we're kind of 60, 50, 40, 30 or 13 years old. And mm. there's, there's a greater degree of, okay, so I can't go out and, you know, go to a restaurant or go to, the pub or, or do these sort of things which adults typically do and, and teenagers are uh, hopefully not doing in the case of the pub but um uh, it's definitely put us all on like a similar playing field and when you are talking to someone now who's 11 years old 12 years old and they're, they're talking about how they feel lonely or they feel isolated or they feel under pressure there's a certain amount of kind of understanding there because you've, you've been through something uh, relatively similar in, in the years that have gone by. So that's, yeah, that, that, that's a really interesting kind of take on, um, on that question. Yeah. Um, with, um, with regard to like technology, I think everyone's had to adapt to it um, to a lesser or greater extent with regards to like online teaching and this kind of thing, but Moving forward, coming back to the fact that you said we're, we're approaching something um, akin to normalcy in Hong Kong at the moment. Um, how, how as an English department do you utilise technology, whether it's individual apps or platforms or whatever? Is there anything that you've used in the past few years that you think is um, particularly outstanding in terms of helping students to improve or to demonstrate understanding? It's an interesting question, isn't it, in the context that we're all in? Because, of course, as you say, we're probably at the most technological point any of us have kind of ever been mm. at. Um, we do use, I mean, to be honest, um, the very short answer is 
not particularly actually um because I think we've kind of started maybe not started I think we've, we've kind of maybe confirmed a feeling actually that technology can't do what mm. teachers and students in classrooms can do it, mm. it can it can get close um and I think you know we will always be very proud of the work that we did particularly early days of the pandemic, you know, getting getting online, mastering Google Meet in, in 30 seconds and, and, and just kind of getting on with it. Um, and I think absolutely early 2020, it was a real revelation, actually, how well, you know, even simple things like Google Docs, Sheets and so on can be a stand in for conversations, the way that actually collaboration can be fostered. Uh, through these platforms like Padlet and so on, where mm. you're able to, to interact um, on an almost human level uh, in the way that you would do in a classroom. Um, but a year and a half has passed, and I think we've now got to that point where we realise that these things are, are only approximations for where the real, you know, the real value in the classroom lies, which is just in the, the relationships and the conversations. So we do use uh, and are continuing to use a platform called IXL, um, oh, yeah. which is it's something that we use actually uh, in English and maths. And we have, I think we have some science access uh, as well for some students. Um, and it's something that we use at the minute for our year 10 students. So it's a conversation whether or not to use it for year nine. And so it's kind of a GCSE preparation tool. Um, but it, if for anyone that's not familiar with it, it, it's really a tool that enables students to work through kind of adaptive grammar, syntax, vocabulary activities. Um, it's something that we found to be moderately successful. Uh, mm. We use it with all year 10s um, and it's also uh, accessible to uh, students who are kind of getting additional learning support, um, who have their own kind of personal accounts, which outlast the account that they get for the kind of mainstream curriculum. Um, and we find that it's quite useful. Some students quite enjoy it. it it's in contrast to a lot of work, I think, in kind of English and literature. It's quite finite. You know, you're yeah. right or you're wrong. And I think that can be quite um, reassuring to students who enjoy that kind of that kind of work. Um, so we do use that. Um, but I think, but yeah, I think actually I'd kind of say our answer is almost becoming the opposite, which is that we're, we're thinking next year about how do we use laptops less? You know, we're, we're a laptop school. Every student has their own laptop. Um, but we found out, I'm not sure where we're at with this, actually, but before the summer, um, there was a conversation that because of global shortages, we may not have our laptops for year sevens ready um, in August when we start. And actually, I know this isn't true for every subject, but for us, we were like, good, keep them away. Yeah. Like, we don't, we, don't, we don't want them. We get them an exercise book and a copy of the text and let's just talk, mm. you know. Um, and so I think it's, it's, it's been that kind of interesting thing um, for me. You know, I, I've always been interested in technology. And how technology might be harnessed in the classroom. We've always been a bit of a sort of over-enthusiastic early adopter of, of Google Classroom or whatever it was, you know, these kind of trends as they come along. And I think they're great as organizational tools. You know, I think Google Classroom um, is incredibly useful. Uh, and iXL definitely has its, its merits and, uh, and Goodreads, you know, all of these kind of digital platforms um, absolutely serve brilliant functions. But Actually, I think our conversation now is more about how do we move away from those things that we've come to rely on over these past year and a half and, and, and just uh, and really just kind of um, enjoy the classroom and the face to face uh, more than anything. And of course, it's also the case, I think, you know, a lot of research backs that up, right, that, that actually mm. it's about relationships. It's about regular feedback and it's, it's about things that you can do um, in a very Luddite kind of way. Um, to, to the same kind of, or even to better kind of effect. And so I, I think that's kind of our kind of guiding principle mm. at the minute as well. Mm. Mm. Yeah, we've, we've used IXL in the past, actually, or we continue to use it now. And it's, I know, it, and I'm not sure the exact words in use them, but it certainly resonated with me in terms of like, it has an impact, dot, dot, dot. But it's, it's kind of one of those mm. things where, um, it's not the be all and end all certainly but it, it is it is quite funny to watch the younger year levels because it's again for anyone who hasn't used it it kind of gamifies grammar grammar skills yeah. and stuff like that doesn't it and um they they I'm not sure if it is healthy or not but they 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 can't take their eyes off the screen they want to keep getting keep going until they get to 100 and I don't know I, I sent out like a student questionnaire at the end of last term with the slightly more senior students and asked them what kind of mm. impact they felt like it was having and again just to echo what you said before it was 
yeah, it was it was kind of the 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 jury was out. I think some kids really liked it. Some felt like it hadn't made much of a difference. But yeah, that well, that's really refreshing to hear though about the kind of the idea that um um we're almost hitting the reset button in terms of um how to interact with the students and kind of engage them with a love for literature beyond the uh the 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 support of technology. That's really good. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the this is quite a sort of niche or parochial question but when it comes to assessments and marking and moderation like you talked about earlier how does kg5 or or even within just your department how do you approach that is it are there certain expectations when it comes to do you identify every error on the page is it you know two i can't remember what that thing was in the uk is it like two two things and a wish or something like that two stars yeah. and a wish or whatever yeah. um what, what kind of approach do you have to that uh, how often do the students get assessed etc uh, etc et mm. um so kind of i guess starting at a sort of school-wide level we have a kind of broad expectation is that in every term basically in every kind of unit of work really so roughly every term students get one piece of formative feedback which is the same for every student across the year group and one piece of summative feedback which is when they receive a grade um, and that's something that is relatively new I, it's hard to remember because of what the last few years but I think we're about three years into this policy now uh, maybe two even um, but really kind of trying to identify points when students get that detailed feedback about how they need to improve before the final assessment and then the grade as well. Um, So that's kind of where we're at, sort of a school-wide level. Um, But really, again, what we're trying to move towards here is, again, a kind of cultural shift, really, towards feedback being not an event, but just good teaching. Um, And so I think something we're trying to work on as a department and I think that's happening across the school as well is this idea that actually the formative summative kind of cycles are benchmarks. They're they're reports, really. You know, the formative uh, feedback is shared with parents. So really, it's a terminally report. Here's where you're tracking right now. Here's what you need to do to improve. Done. Um, And that has its merits. It has its value, certainly. And I think it's important um, to communicate with home and that students have a kind of concrete place that they can look um, for what their feedback is. And of course, I think it's also important that we have a bottom line, that, that all teachers must give formative feedback in addition to a kind of termly grade. So I think there's kind of positive step uh, in the right direction. But where we're trying to get to now is that idea that actually feedback um, is more valuable than kind of assessment with a capital A, that it's actually mm. about um, in every lesson, in every kind of learning cycle or experience whatever you want to call it um that students are getting different kinds of feedback and something that we're kind of working on as a school is is sort of changing the meta language around feedback so that students know they're getting feedback because i think mm-hmm. something that we found is that we've done you know surveys and, and panels with students um and they say oh i don't i don't get any feedback from my teachers and they say okay well list what your teacher does and it's like well, yeah. well that's that's feedback and that's feedback but so so yeah. what's the kind of what are we getting wrong, right, in terms of making sure students know that when you have a conversation about their work, that that is a type of feedback. It might not have a grade attached to it um, or use the words of the marking criteria, but that's still a type of feedback, you know, um, mm. that answering questions in a quiz is, is generates some type of feedback, whatever it is, right? Um, so I think it's about you know, a pedagogical awareness, sharing good practice and and starting to develop not a policy, but a kind of culture or toolkit, whatever, um, that all teachers draw on regularly in terms of giving feedback on this awareness and basis. And then also working more with students so they understand what feedback is, so they recognise how this conversation or how that quiz or uh, how that peer assessment even, you know, how that collaboration with their um, with their peers is also feedback, is also part of the picture um, of getting them to kind of move on and improve and so on. So we have, the, you know, the kind of school-wide expectations. Um, we always say marking happens in a two-week cycle. Um, so students should always get that kind of concrete feedback within two weeks. Yeah. Um, because, of course, you know, workload is, is a kind of perennial issue, right? And I think any kind of school-wide policy has to balance um workload demands with timely feedback but actually you know what we what we know to be true and what we try and kind of turn into our lived experience is the fact that 
feedback is always at its most useful when it's really timely. You know, two weeks mm-hmm. later, ideally the kids already improved. You know, two weeks later they've mm-hmm. learned more, they've experienced more, um, they've processed more, or they've regressed, which is also a normal part of the learning experience. In which case, the feedback would need to change anyway. So, so yes, giving them concrete moments of sort of formalized feedback, um, but looking for ways that feedback can be given instantly. Uh, if not within the same day or within the same kind of teaching cycle of two or three lessons so that it's coming at exactly the point when it's most useful, I think is much more important. Um, And also, again, not a workload drain in the way that, you know, the old fashioned sitting down to mark a collection of books or essays is. And I think there's still value in that. You know, I, I was still in the UK at the moment when a lot of schools started to go to to zero marking policies, which I don't think, you know, often was just, it just meant feedback in a different form. Right. But I remember that moment um, in the kind of pedagogical conversation. And I think like with so many things, it's, it's best that when it's balanced, you Mm -hmm. know, and and we're looking really for, you know, giving them that formal uh, kind of high status feedback, which I think our students really appreciate and want, um, but also looking for ways to, to do it on a much more regular, almost kind of constant basis, really. Um, so that it's most useful and has has its most impact. Uh, are teachers free to kind of do whatever they want with regard to like the 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 depth of feedback mm. with regard to like pen to paper or like um, uh, or or if it's online, like the amount that they kind of uh, write for each individual student? To an extent, I mean, we have kind of an expectation that a little bit like the old two stars and a wish kind of model that that all feedback identifies concretely what is being done well and and, you know point out where that's happening so it's not just you have used some good vocabulary well well, what is the good vocabulary and what makes it good so that there's a kind of concrete praise and that there's a concrete next step well it's concrete target with a next step attached to it um so again making sure that all students it's not just the type of feedback where you're saying okay now in future use discourse markers that's well, what's a discourse marker mm. you know making sure that they know what it is would improve their work and how to go about doing that uh, and then making sure that there is kind of that that feedback lesson whether it's you call it you know dirt time or whatever you know that that feedback <laughs> lesson um where there's at least an hour in their week where they can sit down and say well, okay what was the target i was given how do i need to improve it okay let me let me actively practice this and my teacher's on hand and they can help me and my, my mate who got a different target to me can help me with this too and so on um so that's kind of I guess the benchmark we set in terms of quality and quantity of feedback mm. but in terms of how that's delivered in terms of what that looks like on the page no we don't formalize it you know we have some teachers uh, who love to write a little novel you know and some teachers who <laughs> love to to do kind of sit down do one-to-one tutorials with their students yeah. particularly at IB level and some who love to do kind of highlighting you know kind of really fast color coding um and of course, also the distinction between kind of online feedback and handwritten feedback is also, I think, mm-hmm. a personal choice. Um, and we don't, I said legislate, that's the wrong word. We don't have a policy um, on how, what that feedback looks like, as long as it's, as long as the student, if asked, can tell you, where are you at right now? Where do you need to get to? And, and how are you going to get there? If, if you can have mm-hmm. that conversation, then whether that feedback is, is colourful or in red or typed is, is, is not it's not a concern. Mm, that that um, it's quite interesting from kind of like a language teacher's point of view. The the semantics of that word formative. I remember mm. um, the school I'm at currently. That wasn't necessarily in their nomenclature, let's say. And we we start the the British teachers started to use the word formative and, and summative a couple of years like a long time ago, but uh, years ago now and. I think it's interesting, even from just like a British to an American to a Australian, Canadian, whatever point of view, what formative comes to mean as a as a mm. word uh, within the department. But it made me laugh that I think a couple of months after we started talking about formatives at Key Stage 3 or IGCSE level, um, I, I was talking about an essay that they had to write in my year nine or year 10 lesson. And one of the students turned and said, Oh, it's not a formative, is it, sir? I was like, how do you know? First of all, how have you heard that word? And second of all, why is it filling you with such trepidation? Um, I think it's just, uh, yeah, the, the, the students obviously just see it by, um, I think it's, uh, yeah, it's just an exam or an assessment or a judgment by another name, um, when obviously it's not intended to be. Um, 
Okay, uh, last question from me. Shannon, is um, uh, is there any kind of recommendations for resources that you've come across uh, that you think English teachers would uh, find useful if they're interested in uh, continuing their improvement Mm. in their classroom? Mm. Um, I think the first thing that I would say to that actually um, is that the best resource I've ever found in teaching is just the people who are around you. I know it sounds really corny mm. and cheesy and, and overly emotional, but it's actually true mm. um, that in any school, whether you know, I've worked in schools where the English department was three people and I've worked in schools where it was 18 people. Um, and of course, there will be ranges of subjects and, uh, as well. And I, I think the best thing that anyone who wants to improve can do is to talk to the person they sit opposite in the staff room or in the office and and make that conversation your kind of your habit your norm you know mm-hmm. seek out people and ask them how they approach x y and z or you know seek out people and just seek a kind of relationship a working relationship and look for opportunities in the future where you might be able to come together on something um you know i think that we often in in teaching you can get a very uh, wrapped up in your classroom in your headspace in the belief that external forces are the ones that will teach you what you need to know that mm. if, if the person hasn't been flown in um if they don't have a youtube channel or something then then what can they possibly teach you but actually <laughs> um it's often the, the the person who doesn't lead cpd it's often the person who you you know just happen to bump into walking up the hill to school or something who has the insight that you didn't realize you needed um, and i think second to that is about looking at a school as a whole community. I think coming back to earlier when we were talking about the diversity and inclusion work that KG5 has been engaged in the last year, I have learned so much from our students um, because when you create a context where they're willing to give open feedback, they'll be honest. You know, they'll be more yeah. honest than your staff will be. Um, and often they have incredible insight. You know, I think it's... Yeah. There's very little point, actually, um, you know, again, from the point of view of, say, diversity and and text choice and so on. What I think is diverse is different to what, you know, my audience, my my, 15 year olds, 12 year olds, whatever in front of me think. And and they're the experts to some extent um, on that kind of thing. And I think just opening up that conversation to feedback opportunities um, is really valuable. Now, in terms of concrete stuff, though, because people do like to to Google things. um, I think something that's been really interesting for me, actually. Uh, in the last couple of years um, is I have a, a very kind of tangential um, obsession with like neuroscience. Um, mm. I'm really interested in in kind of the neurology of learning and neuroplasticity and so on. It's something I get to talk about all the time, but it's something I find really interesting. Um, and as a result of that, of course, I've tried to, to, to read as widely as I can, both in terms of that in the educational context, but also beyond that. I think um, there's a great book that I would suggest um, called The Body Keeps the Score, which is about um, trauma and the way that trauma affects cognition. And I think anyone that works in a context where any kind of trauma is, is enormous for community, I would recommend that book to them. Um, but I would also recommend actually um, the... The, I'm not sure what his channel is called actually, but I'm sure if you search for his name, um, there's a there's a guy called Gerard Hovath um, who does a lot of kind of two minute, three minute breakdowns of um, current educational research and pedagogy, particularly around kind of cognition and learning and memory and processing and so on. Um, but they're really good. He's a great speaker, very engaging person to listen to. Um, and I think really useful as well, because I think they're, they're, they're made with teachers in mind. <laughs> they're quick, they're short, they're sharp. And they're also mm. delivered in a way that's good pedagogy. You know, that he's not sitting there in front of a, a PowerPoint with 100 words on it. You know, it's very much kind of un, it's very kind of conversational um, and informative. And I think that's been really great for me, something to kind of dip into, dip out of and so on. Um, the final thing that I would recommend um, is a UK organisation, actually, um, called the College of Teaching, um, which offers basically just access, once you're a member, offers access to to huge directories of of research in addition to research digests. Um, And I think that's something, it's almost like a JSTOR, you know, but purely for pedagogy, purely for educational research. Um, And they also send you a magazine every quarter. Um, So if you don't always think about logging in and, and looking for things you want to find out, someone will bring it to your house so you can just kind of have a look at what they've got. And I I think that was also um, really valuable for me, actually, in a kind of 
reinvigorating way so I think you know like I I did my teacher training I did my master's degree I, I, I did those first few years of teaching we were very engaged um with the wider educational context and then you get you, you get set in your ways you get your habits yeah. you get distracted by the mundaneness of of school sometimes and actually joining that um reinvigorated my interest in, in research um and in the wider community and again in, in that kind of cross school uh cross country you know um kind of opportunity for sharing so I, I think there's a lot out there um and those would be the things i'd recommend um if people do want to google but i, I do genuinely think you know that the best people the, the people i've learned the most from this year um are not youtubers or or, or people on twitter but it's it, it's it's the pgc student who was with us this year it's yeah. it's the students that i was sitting next to in the university crew and those are the people that have really made my year um and i think it's it's really important actually um and also cheaper you know but really important um, <laughs> to just kind of um engage with with the community that the school hands you um as well i would say yeah the uh, um, the student the student side of things is absolutely yeah, the, the highlight of my year is sending out those questionnaires to students at the end of term or <laughs> yeah. something like that. And there's just one, two, I always assure them that it's completely anonymized and this kind of thing. And mm. um, there's one or two comments in there that always kind of make me laugh in a very kind of uh, self-conscious way. Um, I never tire of kind of reading them to my wife and sort of saying, oh, clearly this person has absolutely no faith in my teaching's uh, quality <laughs> whatsoever. So, okay. Oh, they're fantastic ideas. Thank you very much. I'll be sure to um, put some links in and check them out myself. So um, the only thing that remains for you to say, Shans, thank you very much for giving up, uh, although it's quite a rainy day in Hong Kong, um, giving up your time in the summer holidays to chat with me today. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been It's been really good. It's been really interesting to talk. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. Okay, best of luck with the uh, the uh, upcoming academic year. Thank you.